Welcome to Fret Knots with me, Rosie Bennett. Fret Knot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the heroes and the champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, my string of choice and a company full of my favourite people in the guitar world. I play the Imperial Reds and the Paragon Reds if I fancy a little bit of a sharper sound. You can check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to Tarek Harb. Originally from Jordan, he moved to Canada to pursue his studies in finance and ended up in a career in finance until when he was 25. He left that world to become a guitarist and I can safely say that he really has asserted himself what a fantastic player he is, a fantastic teacher, a fantastic person. This was a really amazing conversation that actually lasted for about two and a half hours. I've managed to cut it down to somewhere around 40 minutes for you, but I hope that you really, really enjoy this. What is a lesson you've learned that's been the most meaningful to you? Uh, well, there are many lessons, honestly, that I've learned along the way, and uh, sometimes it's hard to remember uh, different uh, lessons <laughs> that have taught me so much, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think one is to not compare myself. I think that was really a key for me. Mm -hmm. uh, just because I started quite late in the classical world, let's say. I was a musician as a kid, and I played in rock bands and stuff like that as I was growing up as a teenager. Uh, but never really took it seriously, never studied it formally. And uh, so once I got into the classical world, I was so in love with the music that really nothing else matters, really. Like, I didn't really um, think about how I should be playing whether properly or not, or I should be producing this sound or that sound. So listening to different uh, recordings, I just learned that, you know, yes, I have a, lo a long way to go. So I'm just not gonna really uh, try to compare myself to others or to uh, simply also other sounding guitars or violins at the time, you know, because mm -hmm. you know, violin costs a fortune. So I, I couldn't really get a good instrument. So I didn't want to, yeah, I think that really helped me in a way to, uh, to develop my own voice, mm -hmm. to, uh, to just find my own way in interpretation. And uh, now as I'm composing, also I'm trying not to compare myself at all, because, you know, we play, we play pieces by J.S. Bach and all other great composers, and I don't call myself a composer, but, you know, <laughs> I'm sort of uh, relearning to think that way. Mm -hmm. To not really compare myself, and uh, it, it gave me a, a, a chance to develop uh, a unique voice. I think you know, I, I celebrate that. That's one of one of the main lessons that really helped me sort of survive in this uh, in this world. Have you ever compared yourself, or you just having seen other people struggle with comparison, you realize that it's sort of a gift? I mean, as as a kid, I was into sports a lot, and uh, I was uh, into basketball. Mm -hmm. so I would always sort of compare myself to other players and even to players in the NBA, which was absurd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that, that didn't help at all. But, um, but yeah, I learned not to do that when I went into music mm -hmm. and now I try to teach that to my students. So, uh, so for them, uh, for example, uh, they can't play the same piece in the semester. You know, each student has to have a different repertoire mm -hmm. so that they don't 
again, they don't compare themselves, what they're doing and how they're phrasing, how they're playing or their abilities. Mm. So I try to uh, cross over uh, to them that kind of notion mm -hmm. to really celebrate oneself and to uh, to be as honest as, as you can with yourself. And of course, you can always improve and, and add to your uh, you know arsenal of expressive tools, but uh, it takes time, it takes patience. Mm -hmm. So work with what you have and, and uh, you know, um, show your strengths and work on your weaknesses, as simple as that. When a student has a piece that they want to play, do you recommend them to go and listen to recordings of it? Or is it part of the process that you sort yeah, of Yeah, I try to uh, first understand uh, what they think about the piece and if they know it already. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not having any issues with uh, sort of translating the score. Mm -hmm. I encourage them to not listen too much to recordings until we've worked on it for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, I tell them you're free to listen to whatever you want. Of course, they're always free to listen to whatever they want, but I feel that one gets really um, sort of influenced by other recordings and uh, your ideas get pushed uh, in the back burner, you know, because mm -hmm. <laughs> you might like this or that or what, the, what this performer did on this recording and, and you sort of replicate it perfectly, mm -hmm. which is another uh, type of exercise that I let them do. So... First, they learn the piece the way they think the score should go. Mm -hmm. And then we take some recordings and I try to um, sort of let them imitate exactly what's happening in the recording. Because I, I think that if they are unable to do that, they won't be able to replicate their ideas perfectly either. Mm -hmm. So if you can copy a recording perfectly, it means that you're listening very well mm -hmm. and you're translating it into your fingers onto your instrument very well. Mm -hmm. That means your creative ideas, whether you are able to achieve them now or not, uh, will come to fruition sooner or later because you're able to really replicate what you want, what's mm -hmm. in your mind uh, onto your instrument. So it's sort of a process where it goes, they learn it on their own. They develop this, again, as I wrote to you, the personal relationship with the score. Mm -hmm. And then they, they're free to listen to all recordings available and take ideas. And, you know, it's never set in stone either. Mm -hmm. So they can change and take ideas. And once they do that, they also notice that their memory gets better. And just the whole process of learning the piece gets more engraved in their mind. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so there are less memory slips or less parts where they forget or, you know, so it's, it's almost like... Um, uh, putting another layer of uh, memory practice on top of what they've already done. So they get a really solid interpretation in the end, I think. Something that's convincing, something that they love, something that uh, they, they, they can build on uh, with time too. They don't have to stick to that idea forever. They always tell them like, if it comes from a place of presence, it mm -hmm. can't be wrong really. Like if you're absolutely feeling it and you're and you're in the moment making the music or deciding on a certain interpretation, you're absolutely convinced by it. Uh, I don't think there's there's a right or wrong way. Of course, I always also tell them that if you're playing a varied program, mm -hmm. you don't want to sound the same from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. So you have to take into consideration style. Yeah. Right. So yeah. there are certain things that we do mm -hmm. when we play Baroque music that is different than when we play Romantic music. And if you honor these things and you have that conviction, then your interpretation will be even stronger and more impactful. And you'll sound and you'll really take the audience through sort of a journey in time and you won't really sound the same throughout on the same instrument. You don't have to change instruments. 
But the question of style is very important to, to, uh, to what I, how I try to teach them at least. And what does that mean for you? Um, I think certain instruments were more popular than others in certain times. So if we try to imitate those instruments that were popular at the time, we're, I guess we're closer to that performance practice or historically informed performance practice. So if we can get the trills to sound a little more like a harpsichord playing uh, Baroque music, uh, th that would be a bit different than playing uh, a violin piece from the Romantic period, for example. Do you think that it's important? Is there an importance for you in staying authentic to what would have been presented at the time? I think the, the level of importance is where is what you're asking uh, here. If, if, I, if I really cared about being absolutely authentic, I would be playing on a, on a period instrument. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll be learning the lute and, and uh, playing it without the nails and learning Baroque guitar and so on and so forth. And, but that is not my concern here. Uh, my concern is to just sort of time travel during a concert. Okay, I see. So it's more about the experience that the audience is having. Yes. In this, so you're sort of showing something, yes. presenting this time period. Exactly, okay. presenting yeah. it uh, according to what we think is right. We have some letters here and there, but I mean, we, we don't have any recordings, so we really can't tell yeah. what an Allegro in the Baroque period was compared to an Allegro today. Yeah, it's something really confusing. I, I went to um, a string school. Mm -hmm. So guitar tends to be a little bit all over the place, but strings have a little bit more of an idea what they're doing when it mm. comes to honoring the past. You're right with violin. There is a lot of different sort of methods, different schools, different beliefs, almost it's like religious entities. And I'm kind of, I, I just become increasingly fascinated by the idea of trying to, trying to recreate that and what importance it has, because you're right. There's a degree of how much you're honoring the past. Mm -hmm. Um, honoring the past even is a really loaded way of saying it, but in how much like historical practice uh, we engage in, I guess. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, I, yeah. But yeah, I just, I don't sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but I'm just, I guess what I'm, what I'm interested in is why we debate it so hotly and why we're sort of constantly searching for what would have been the right thing to do. If we take the, 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 the tools that they were using and we try to imitate that type of sound, I think we get closer to the real deal just fascinating really that kind of like trying to get close to what it what it was because music is such a a living art so in a way how it lives today is is almost as right i guess as what was Absolutely. being played then that clicked something in my brain when you said that you like this kind of time traveling thing you want to show the time that this music came from i think that's a really probably the only lovely motive behind that because I think a lot of it can be entrenched in this upper class elite trying to inject knowledge into music um, but I think that's a really nice thought behind it like nobody has truth with a capital T you know yeah. <laughs> indeed <laughs> but, but it's I think um, what I wanted to say like for example with vibrato mm. it was more difficult to do vibrato on the violin in the baroque time because they had no shoulder rest and no chin rest it was very difficult to actually stabilize the instrument and vibrate on every note. Yeah. But, you know, uh, with necessity came invention and they had the chin rest and the shoulder rest. And now if you see like specifically the American school of violin playing, 
they vibrate on every note, you know, yeah. and that's a different way of playing. <laughs> so when they come to play Baroque, they have to sort of hold their horses a little bit because, to sound a little more authentic, just because they didn't have that technology back then. So it was much easier to just vibrate on a very long note mm -hmm. rather than on every 16th note that's going in a mm -hmm. passage. So when sure, we come to the yeah. guitar, we try to maybe lessen the vibrato or the, or the, the width of the vibrato or the speed of the vibrato just so we sound mm -hmm. more like how they actually sounded because the, it was impractical to do the vibrato all the time. So it mm -hmm. wasn't taught the way it is taught today because the tools were not there to make it happen, if you know what I mean. I suppose, yeah, it's just, it's funny. I wonder how often it really happens because I think a lot of this, um, a lot of the conversations around authenticity and sort of correct styles of playing um, often in practice, they don't, depends, maybe I'm going to say something wrong now, but I think that innately not many people embellish, for instance, Baroque music so much. I think it's actually quite, it feels quite odd. So I think what we're really doing is explaining something that's quite within us already. Exactly. Um, which is kind of funny. But I wonder how, um, how does that go in your lessons? Like if somebody would show up and they're playing um, some Bach and they're vibratoing like crazy, then what's your what's your go-to are you sort of in that situation are you sticking by the sort of it's your own voice and you keep it that way or is it like stop that <laughs> yeah i always go back to that they're playing different repertoire in the recital and if mm. your vibrato sounds similar when you're playing tedesco and then when you're playing bach you're not really offering anything different for the audience. You're not offering any contrast. For example, like if I have some students that play with such beautiful tone, but it's always beautiful. It's always the same, you know? Yeah. So, so I tell them, how can I appreciate your beautiful tone if you don't give me a different color somewhere? I need the mm -hmm. contrast. For us to really appreciate your full, luscious, round tone, you have to give us some time in the music, maybe when the harmony uh, is more suited to that thinner sound or edgier sound, then we will hear that contrast and we will appreciate more your, the beauty of your of your standard sound, let's say, or your default sound. The same thing with the vibrato. If they're using it a lot everywhere, we sort of just zone it out. We don't hear the vibrato anymore. We don't hear the beauty of the vibrato. So with the Baroque, I try to tell them, try to control a little bit the vibrato where imagine the instrument is a little looser. Like imagine you don't have your guitar support and then do a vibrato that's sensible and that's musical. And yes, that is acceptable. But don't do a vibrato that suggests that your instrument is so stable on you and you're vibrating like crazy. It just doesn't fit the, 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 the style because they didn't do that. They couldn't do that. That wasn't part of their training. I wonder now. So now I have another question. So, okay. So, right. There's a limit. That's how I think of it. I don't know if it's right or wrong. I just think again of these tools, no, no, like okay. just by basic research and, and, and I, and I try to use my imagination and think, okay, if I'm going to vibrate with those with, without the support and without anything. How would it sound? Will I be able to continue the piece? Will I be able to continue the phrase? I wonder for you as a composer. <laughs> now I'm I'm calling you a composer too. This is like the parameters of this question. You are a composer. So in 200 years from now, if somebody is playing a piece by you and it sounds completely different because the style of playing is different, 
What does that, in this hypothetical situation, what does that mean for you as a composer? Does it feel like it's not your music anymore? Does it matter? What's your stance on this? I, I don't think it matters. I mean, as long as they're playing the notes that I suggested, <laughs> you know, that are published. What if they're not? <laughs> <laughs> if they're changing some things and it sounds better, then so be it. You know, my music is very sort of visceral and very attached to emotions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I even just drop the theory and this should go there. No, but it sounds better going here. So I'm just going to go there and I'm just going to let it be. And mm -hmm. it's really very much driven by emotions. So if they're playing it dry and without feeling it, then maybe I'll be turning in my grave. But <laughs> I'm very curious. Well, that could be actually, I mean, not that situation, but just, you know, we do live in an era now where personal identification and personal emotion really defines a lot of our interaction. So that's actually maybe an interesting, um, like a prospect for the future that perhaps if we become more automated and life becomes a little bit more calculated, then um, perhaps that will be the historical research and people will indeed in 200 years time be saying, no, you know, in, in 2021, 22, they, um, they really played with a lot of passion. What's that? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you a second question, unless you've got something else to say, because otherwise I'm going to talk forever. Yeah, yeah, it's sure, really sure. fascinating. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> what is a lesson that you would like to impart? Yeah, I think it's the, um, the idea of perfection and being, uh, quote unquote, perfect, you know, while mm -hmm. playing or even while recording, uh, I think really stifles imagination. And it did for me. And um, I went through phases of, let's say, technical phases, then musical phases. And then again, back to technical phases, I guess, uh, just because I needed to go through that, mm -hmm. bring up my technique a little bit, then I noticed, okay, I'm becoming too mechanical. So I'm just going to forget about these exercises, I'm going to think more musical. Mm -hmm. And I arrived to a point where really, um, if I'm able to be present with every note that I'm playing, I get a much better result in the end, and I'm happier with what I did. So um, because I noticed like perfection, even if it's perfect for me might not be perfect for you or for the uh, another listener, or what does perfect really mean? Is it the notes are all clean? Is the phrasing very emotional, very powerful, impactful, and life-changing maybe? Is that mm -hmm. perfect? What is it really? So, so I tried to, because my students, they always come, I listened to that recording, or I saw that concert, and it was perfect from beginning to end. And, and they get into this idea that they have to do that. And I think it can be very dangerous and maybe some people will quit such a career because only of that notion, mm -hmm. them not being able to achieve that perfection. So I always tell them, try to be present. As I heard Yo-Yo Ma once say, play present, not perfect. Play present, not perfect. So I think if there's any lesson that I would, would like to impart, it's this one. And it's tough to be present while playing, to be honest. Even if you're recording, if you're recording, you know, that red light or that camera, the battery is running out. Or, I mean, there's so many things that cross your mind while you're playing that, it, that most of the time I found myself before starting thinking like that, that most of the time I wasn't really present. Thinking of the phrase that's coming next or that mm -hmm. right hand fingering that's challenging that I worked on just a week before the concert. 
And that's immediately I'm out of presence there. I'm not present anymore, right? Mm. What does it mean for you being present on stage? To be with the melody, like constantly. So as you're playing, you're, you are that melody as you're going with it, as it's changing one note to the other. So you're not really thinking of what's coming or what happened. You're just with it right now, you know? So if you can stay from beginning to end like that and you practice that way, to just be with it. So let's say you're talking to your friend and then they tell you, okay, play that passage. Then you're immediately with that passage and only with that passage. I know it's difficult to exp to explain, but <laughs> there arises some new form of intelligence when you do that, sort of like a universal intelligence that's uh, backing you up in a way. It's really weird. I'm sure you've experienced that. That transition from realizing that you were not playing in a present way to playing in a present way. What was that like? It was extremely freeing compared to playing perfectly. Where when we're playing, let's say you want to record a phrase mm -hmm. and you want it to be absolutely clean, right? Absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking, I want it to be perfect and you're playing and you're maybe pressing a little more on the frets to make sure they don't buzz. Maybe you're your body is holding the instrument a little tighter just to make sure it doesn't shift or no surprises happen. Throughout that time, you are, in fact, harming yourself a little bit, whether it's tension in your body or uh, stress on your mind or stress in your body for you not breathing correctly or freely. Mm -hmm. So you might need to do this take three, four times, if not more. And even when you get it and you listen back, you listen back after a while, not in that state. So you got to take a little, you have to be uh, sort of relaxed and, and mm -hmm. good with yourself when you listen back. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that it's not that beautiful, uh, at least for me, excuse me. Mm -hmm. I, I noticed that it's not really what I thought I could do or what I actually wanted to do. It sounds great and maybe perfect, but it doesn't have that transformative power that I always look for. So doing the same experiment by just being with the music as I'm playing, maybe the, the volume is not equal from beginning to end and the notes are not, but everything is there and there's this fluidity to it and you can tell there's a sense of ease in the sound. You know what I mean? And, and so when, when people listen to it, they will be, I, I'm sure, and I, I've seen it happen even with Instagram posts where I do these little experiments with myself, mm -hmm. that the response is, is way more um, human in a way. People just gravitate naturally towards something that's being presented from a state of presence mm -hmm. rather than something being presented from a state of pure study. I like to always give my students this exercise that sort of helps them be present and to practice presence every day is just five minutes of listening what's going around. So, so you're just silent and you're simply listening to what is happening. And you'll hear a lot of things and you don't have to identify them or anything like that. You just have to take this five minutes and be absolutely quiet while sort of receiving all these sounds that are around you. You might, if you're in a really quiet room, you might hear your insides. 
<laughs> so it's pretty freaky when that happens because we have like um, sound uh, proof rooms at, uh, at the university and it gets really quiet and you can hear like, you know, <laughs> something. it's like your heart pulsing and it's pretty freaky. Okay. But but doing that every day, just five minutes, you'll be much better at applying it while you're playing. So you can simply mm. just listening to what you're doing in the moment. And you are present when you do that. It reminds me of that part. It must be in either the inner game of music or the inner game of tennis. Um, uh, yeah. The, the one of those book, ones. I guess yeah. it's the music one where he has this exercise set out in the first couple of pages. You have to tap on the table and then you have to just observe how, um, or maybe it's the other way around. I think first you have to try to get them even in volume, mm. in in tempo, really try and get them even. And then stop and then do the same, but just observe. And the point is that when you just observe, it evens out much more than you ever could control, uh, actively trying to. So, but I'm going to ask you now, because <laughs> now you <laughs> seem to have this down. So how do you sew together being the observer and observing what you're doing and also being in control? Yeah, I struggled with the in control thing and I still do. Uh, mm. But I found that the less control uh, I have um, over the movements, given that I have respected the form required. So, for example, if I'm having something with the left hand that needs some fixing, I would focus more on having a correct form rather than controlling fingers. Does that, I see. Does that make okay, sense? Yeah. So there's a certain form when you do a jump shot in basketball. You just you don't just jump and throw your throw the ball. Mm -hmm. There's a specific form that has been, you know, replicated many times and has been tested and you know, and okay. players that same thing with classical guitar. Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just yeah. have to hone this correct form with proper training, and then you can sort of rely on it and forget about the control part. Okay. Similarly with the right hand. So there's a form that you need to respect and you need to learn. And it takes mm -hmm. time, might take all your life. But there is a correct form to playing. And, and, and that, that is what I try to focus on. Sometimes with the little bad habits that creep in, or if you're tired, you can't maintain that form. Mm -hmm. You start playing with collapsed fingers, maybe, or a little bit tilted the hand that way, or the wrist going this way. or yeah. So that all throws the form away. Okay. So that, that needs proper training because you can't really control the form, really. That is like yeah. muscular tension and uh, we shouldn't go there so much. Right? Indeed. Okay. <laughs> I see. I like it. So now I'll, I'll say that it's similar to um, a nice poker analogy, which is um, something Daniel Negreanu says, which is that, um, you know, if you always play the hands right, then uh -huh. you'll eventually over time you'll win so maybe this is the same here if you uh -huh. play the hands right even if sometimes you lose control you'll win eventually absolutely absolutely yeah i think <laughs> i think knew? that's that's the way to go yeah yeah <laughs> that's that's a good analogy i'm gonna use that too <laughs> this is actually really fascinating because it's especially for me it's something that i'm kind of just on the edge i guess it's been trying to peek into my life at different times, but in my actual performance, 
-huh. It's something that I'm confused by and exploring at the moment. I saw something recently as well that just, I don't know, I think probably a lot of students do this because you're quite scared to talk about stuff or to ask questions when you're studying. Sure. And um, so what you do is you take your personal experience and then you sort of plaster it onto everybody and you spend your whole life saying, yeah, you know, it's, uh, oh, you know that when that happens and actually people are thinking, no, that doesn't, that doesn't happen to me. Yeah, doesn't <laughs> um, you're to having me. this singular experience, <laughs> but just pretending that it's not, or you think it's not. And I always had thought that walking on stage, you had this experience of kind of ultimate Zen. You know, you I used to have these incredible nerves in the first movement, and then there would be this kind of second movement bliss where it's like, am I even alive right now? This is so crazy. What am I doing? It's like a really trippy experience. And then I recently saw something. It was just like a kind of stupid cartoon actually on Instagram. And someone had written, oh, I think a lot of musicians suffer from this. And it was desensitization on stage. And I realized that this is not something that everybody has just it's something you can have from, you know, it's like this other experience of nerves or anxiety is this complete unawareness of where you are and, and what you're doing. And I thought, oh my God, I just, I just thought that that was performing. Um, and now realizing that the opposite of desensitization is that not hyper awareness, but indeed just that, that presence that's sort of knowing what you're doing, knowing that you're here. You can be there. You can be part absolutely. of it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point that you make is that we prepare for this great concert or event. And then once it happens, we're not there. We're just freaking out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> instead of relishing in the moment and enjoying it and, yeah. and really communicating. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, uh, I mean, I always, everybody, I think everybody works on that. There's always nerves. There's always the need to be your best and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. It's just if you can manage it as to so as to not to harm yourself, you know, <laughs> with, with the anxiety, it has a lot of side effects. And and, you know, if you can sort of if you know, like, for example, I know I get cold hands, mm -hmm. so I always have a blow dryer backstage and that just solved it. You know, so little things like that, if you know, like if you can prepare for me, if I know how to prepare and I make sure that I prepare everything uh, before and then on stage, I, I learned maybe from the cultural background that I come from, but I figured out that on stage, I can be whoever I want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, at that moment, I can feel whatever I want. Mm -hmm. I can ma make the music laugh or cry. I can cry myself if I want. I'm on stage, you know, Yeah. <laughs> music is backing me up. And the guitar is with me. I'm not alone where I come from. It, sometimes you're, you're always shunned and told what to do and not to be this, not to be that. And, and for me, being on stage was like the breakthroughs, like finally I can be myself, you know? Mm -hmm. So I always find yeah. it as a sort of a sacred moment for me whenever I go on stage. So uh, I think I'll always look at it that way, but I'm just managing the stress a little better now. <laughs> and hopefully... <laughs> <laughs> it gets better with time. But yeah, the, the presence things really helped me and even helped me speaking on stage because I used to sort of plan what to say. Yes. And I found that that's a terrible idea. You know, at least maybe some little points here and there I could plan, but to plan exactly what to say is, is not for me. So just being 
present and, and knowing what I'm talking about and I, what, what I want to say and just communicating with the audience as if we're sitting in a, in a, in a lounge together or something like that, you know, without yeah. that formality. Yeah, people love it. People really yeah. tend to love that, you know, to, to just, uh, yeah, bring back, back to the human level, you know, we're all going through this <laughs> together. Yeah, you know? indeed. <clears throat> and it, it makes, like, sometimes it just takes seeing it or, or experiencing it with somebody else or, you know, going to a concert that's, that you feel really present in as an audience member. Yeah. Um, but then... Yeah. As soon as you see it once, you think, of course, you know, so I, of course it is. When I see people saying something, of course it makes sense that, you know, if you end up in a room full of kids that you don't talk about this piece in the same way that you would to a bunch of people who know this stuff. I go to so many concerts like that where the program notes just seem like they've been copied and pasted 180 times or whatever for every concert. Yeah. People act the same way. And you think if you went to a party, and you were talking with people, you just said, you explained about yourself in exactly the same way every time. You'd end up maybe communicating with two or three people <laughs> if you were going to a party every night. It's just it's like, of course, if you're going to communicate, you have to listen as well. And that's something I think we don't really prepare for because, yeah. and obviously it's also really scary because when you're going to do a concert, the last thing you want to do is be super influenced by your environment, right? I remember the first time I played in Miami, I never understood what people talked about when they talked about humidity. And then I suddenly understood, oh my God, my hands are stuck to the strings. What is this? You know, and then you learn to listen because you're like, well, okay, I have to adapt, I guess. I can't do the same thing here. To me, I, th I always think about it as being a host, you know, like when you're hosting a few friends, you know, they're coming to your place, you want to, they don't necessarily want to think that your food is the best food ever. They just want to have a good time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. It's and true. something goes and something goes wrong in a in party all the time. You know, there's the, the whatever the fish is undercooked or the, mm -hmm. the, or there's no more liquor or something. But thank God you have other food or you have yeah. different type of, you know, you have beers or whatever, you know, so so it's OK if something goes. That's what I tell myself if something goes wrong in a concert. Uh, thank God there are other pieces, there are still things happening. So, so I just try to be a good host. I guess we have to think a little differently about how we're communicating. And a lot of that comes through being present in the, in the situation that you're in. Uh, because Absolutely, yeah, whether it's an online concert or an actual concert, in-person concert, you still have to have that presence. Enjoy yeah, yourself and to, and to, for others to really, uh, get into your world, you know, because you're sort of bringing them on a journey, you're taking them on this trip. I experienced that, uh, I think the most when I was presenting my own piece. So I wrote like a suite for guitar, five movements, it's 18 minutes long, it's called Spirit. And it has a lot to do with my, uh, my mother passed away in 2019. And it was during that time I was writing it. And then the fifth movement, like just couple of days before she passed away I was right next to her you know mm -hmm. and I was just thinking of her all the time and infusing the themes that she likes from Arabic music mm -hmm. putting it together and then sharing that in concert and being present and they're all listening to it and oh my god that was like it was extremely emotional I really had to hold my tears back because I was very touched by that moment it was it was insane and I had a whole new understanding of sharing music with people 
when it's in your own music, maybe it's not my own music, you know, even when writing it, I felt that I was just taking pieces of the puzzle from another room and putting them together in this room. Mm-hmm. It really felt like I was just making it uh, legible for people to understand what I'm, what I'm writing. You know, it didn't mm-hmm. seem that I wrote the piece. It's a really funny experience. Uh, but even then, uh, I just felt this whole new level of connection with the audience and communication with those ears that were just silent, listening to what I really had to say. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I try to tell my students always, like you're, this piece that you're playing, it has to become your piece. You have to feel every bit of it and, and try to really put yourself in the shoes of the composer or, or not, or make it your own story. You know? That's what's important here. You know? What is the lesson that you're currently working on? Well, I om- I'm always working on the presence thing for sure. Mm-hmm. And especially in, in, uh, when I'm learning new pieces. So I try to see um, what is it that's taking me out of that zone? Is it uh, the, the, do I have to figure out like the right hand fingering here? Is it the left hand fingering? Is it the choice of string that I'm using? Like what is taking me out of that presence? I was just there, the bar before. <laughs> what mm-hmm. happened here? This sounded good, but I was completely not there. So I'm still working on that a lot. And uh, I guess now learning to manage my time a little better. That's a tough one really. Because I like to practice mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I don't mind practicing, like sometimes just sitting at home and practicing all day. I mean, I don't mind. I don't have anything against it. I don't feel bad or that I have to be faster or anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I cover quite a lot when I do that, but um, I can't afford that nowadays with the teaching and everything that I'm trying to juggle mm-hmm. from social media to e- answering emails to uh, just being at home and you know, so I guess managing my time, learning how to practice more efficiently is always something that I would love to just like spend a day with a piece and then voila, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still dreaming of that. <laughs> <laughs> Even to the point where I practice just before I sleep, you know, so that when I wake up, it's a little more ingrained in my mind. Because I remember my brother once told me that's how he learned juggling. Right? So he would do it just before he went to sleep. And there's something to that, you know, there's something your, your brain just, you know, with the rest that you have, it sort of calculates and organizes for you. And, yeah. and then you wake up and you're just a little more able than the night before. Given that it's actually proven that the mind is, or the brain rather, is uh, plastic or has plasticity from the cradle to the grave, you can always learn really, albeit sometimes a bit slowly as you grow older, but it doesn't mean that your brain is now set, so it can always learn new things. That's where I was like completely convinced that I can become a full-time musician even at a later stage. Even though I was told repeatedly, that's not the way it's done, you won't be able to do it, it's not going to work. Oh yeah, even I had a teacher, I won't mention names, I had a teacher at the time when I first started, He's like, why don't you just go back to finance? Like you've had the career going and you just quit it and you're starting music now. It's going to take you, I don't think it's going to work, man. You know, like literally like that. And I'm like, well, that's my last lesson with you. (laughs) (laughs) And that just fired me even more to want to do what I want to do, you know. 
I always tell my students it's important to do it one day after another because again it's been proven that your learning will become exponential it's not mm -hmm. like if you do it one day yes one day no you learn half as much you learn much less than half so it's ha doing it daily is key to learning something new and not overbearing your mind that's how I understand it I'm not a scientist mm -hmm. or anything like that but <laughs> I read a lot about this stuff and I uh, yeah yeah, it's always it's always fascinating to learn uh, how we how we work, how our brain works. Good sleep is key. So <laughs> you're not the first person who's talked about managing yeah. time. I think post Corona, well, yeah. post Corona, obviously we're still here. Yeah, but, we're still here. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, after that kind of initial first lockdown, mm. the shock of the first lockdown, I think a lot of people are readjusting to yeah. what it really means to be balancing your time in efficient yeah. and, and efficient in a healthy way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We found this uh, so, so much extra time uh, during the pandemic, right? Because yeah. there are no concerts, no traveling, but it can be stressful too on your mind. So you have to always take breaks. You have to still uh, treat it gently. <laughs> Altamira is the leading brand of handcrafted traditional guitars, specializing in classical nylon string, historical replica, and gypsy jazz guitars. Altamira fosters music education and performance through its foundation that hosts and sponsors international symposiums and competitions in Asia, Europe, North America, and Australia. I've recently been lucky enough to be sent an N3 model guitar from Altamira, and it is one of the cleanest, easiest to play instruments that I've ever had the chance to have in my collection. They're beautiful instruments, handcrafted with love, and you can tell. These instruments are wonderful. They have models right down from the beginner level, right up until concert instruments that you would be proud to put your name to. You can check them out at altamiraguitars.com. And again, I'll put that link in the description box so that you can check it out at your own pace. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next week for the next episode of Fret Not. <laughs>